You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. It's really good to see all of you here at City Church this afternoon. My name is Eric Bonkowski, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you haven't noticed yet, today's Old Testament scripture reading is rather long. Some of you probably noticed that as soon as you came in this afternoon. You know, I was talking uh, last week with a friend of mine who has a son who's a teenager and he's visited some other churches and what he's noticed about City Church is that we always read from the Bible, although it's not always quite as long as today. We always read from the Bible and then the sermon, the message is always about the Bible passage. And what I want you to realize is that's a feature, not a bug here at City Church. We do that on purpose. We read scripture, sometimes long passages of scripture, because of what we believe about the Bible. We believe that it comes straight from God's mouth. It's his word, and it's useful for our lives, and it leads us into good works. And we do that every week, whether or not the preacher likes it, and whether or not the congregation likes it. Because sometimes we come up against these passages that if it were up to me, maybe I would choose not to preach on. And if it were up to you, maybe you would choose not to listen to. But if the Bible is God's word, then it's all useful for us. We just have to figure out why. So right now at City Church, we're in this series where we are going through uh, Exodus chapters 7 through 15, and we've been talking recently about the plagues, and soon we'll lead into the Passover. And what I have said about the plagues in this section of Exodus is that the whole purpose is for us to know that God is the Lord who wins. In the midst of all the different claimants for power in the world, it is the Lord who wins. We're going to see that again today. So I'm going to read this lengthy passage of scripture, and as I read it, here's what I want you to pay attention to. Pay attention to how Pharaoh's heart is described in these verses. Because as we understand Pharaoh's heart, we may just understand our own hearts and God's heart for us. All right, so buckle up. I'm going to read uh, Exodus 9 beginning at verse 13 uh, through chapter 10. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people, and you will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send... 
Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and it broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of this city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians. As neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go out that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are you to go? Moses said, We'll go with our young and our old. We'll go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all, the hail, all that the hail has left. 
So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came over the, all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that we need your word to soften our hard hearts and to awaken our minds to the reality of our sin and the reality of your love. We pray that you would do that for us through Jesus, your son. Amen. All right, so the plagues in the book of Exodus come to us in a total of 10 plagues. And what we've talked about is they come in three series or three cycles of three plagues each. Today, what I've just read are plagues 7, 8, and 9, the third cycle of plagues. Next, uh, the next sermon in this series will focus on the 10th climactic plague. And what is the purpose of these 10 plagues? Well, you may know the story of Exodus. The purpose, on one hand, is to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. Let my people go. That's the whole purpose. And that's true insofar as it goes. But I want you to notice that there's another deeper purpose to the plagues in the Passover. We're told about it right at the start of this passage. It was a long time ago, so maybe you forgot it. It says in chapter 9, verse 14 why God is sending these plagues. It says, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. 
so that you may know there's none like me in all the earth. And it goes on to explain this, that the reason for the plagues is so, so that Israel would know, so that Egypt would know, so that we would know how great God is. It's the purpose of these plagues. A couple of weeks ago, I explained that the plagues are strikes of God's judgment against Egypt. I explained as well that when we have eyes to see, they are signs of God's mercy. And I want us to understand both of those things today, that they're strikes of judgment and they are signs of God's mercy to us. You see, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes we can get so focused on each individual plague and what it means, but really we need to take them as a whole, that these plagues together are meant to show how great God is, that you would know, that I would know, that God is the Lord and there is no other. God is a God of creation. He makes marvelous things, but he is also a God of judgment. And his greatness is revealed through his judgment against sin and everything that is unholy, just as it is made manifest in his works of creation, in his works of blessing. And in fact, there's something deep within us that wants that to be true. We all want things that are evil and things that are opposed to God ultimately to be judged. That's what the plagues are saying to us. In this third cycle of plagues, if you've been with us for the previous two sermons, this third cycle, it's like, uh, it's turning up the intensity. It's like a a dial or a thermostat, and, and God is turning up the heat a little bit more. And they're more comprehensive. They're more irreversible. The things that are happening in Egypt It's as though God is turning the dial up just a little bit more. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through each of these plagues, but let me just comment on what these three plagues are. First, we have hail. Really, we have thunder hail, right? You ever been through a thunder uh, snowstorm? This is thunder hail. Thunder and lightning, very, very frightening. Is what's going on in Egypt as a sign of God's judgment because hail and lightning and rain throughout Scripture is a sign of God's judgment. And this is that sign, and it's just turned up to the max. And from hail, which is the longest of all the ten plagues, then we move into locusts. And God is very clear to say all the things that the hail didn't damage, well, the locusts are going to come and eat. Locusts, those are like uh, grasshoppers, big swarms of grasshoppers. Probably the closest equivalent that we know of here in Richmond are the cicadas, right? And I'm told that this year, 2024, is like some mashup of two broods of cicadas, and it's supposed to be especially awful in some parts of the country. This infestation of cicadas. I don't know if uh, some of you are old enough to remember the TV show Fear Factor. It was this terrible TV show, but they would put people in these compromised situations. And all I can think of when I think about the locust is people having to like lie in a box that is filled with cockroaches, right? Crawling over everything. That's what the picture of the locusts are. Not just crawling over your skin, but eating at food, taking all the vegetation away. Some of you know that I am very fond of the fig tree that I have planted behind our house. 
and uh, I don't get locusts on the fig tree, but if I let the figs get overripe, I uh, face an infestation of fig eater beetles. It's a clever name, isn't it? They're uh, basically like Japanese beetles, maybe a little bit bigger, and they descend on overripe fruit. And the first time I discovered this, I went to pick a fig, and I looked up at it, and the fig was moving because it was covered with all these beetles that were moving around. And I reached up, and they started dive-bombing at me, and I jumped back in fear because of the infestation of fig eater beetles. Now, it turns out they can't do much damage to us. The reason they have to go after overripe figs is their teeth are really weak. Their jaws are weak, so that they can't break through our skin and bite us or sting us. But it's that fear that comes from this infestation of locusts. And not just the fear, it's sort of the shock factor, but the destruction. It's a sign of God's judgment on Egypt. And notice, too, that as these clouds of locusts come into Egypt, what happens to the sky? The sky is darkened. And that's important because it carries over into the ninth plague, which is the plague itself of darkness. And did you notice what the scripture said? A darkness that can be felt. Have you ever felt darkness? Deep, weighty darkness that feels like a weighted blanket over you. If you've ever been in a cave, you've experienced this. It's the the darkness where you put your hand right in front of your face and you can't even see your hand because there's no light at all. It's a darkness that can make you claustrophobic in just an instant. And this was not just a cave in Egypt, this was over the whole land. A sign of God's judgment pressing down on the people tightening their chests, a darkness that could be felt. The judgment against Egypt's sin is getting turned up. But here's what I really want to focus on for the next few minutes. I want to focus on Pharaoh's heart. Remember I told you as I was reading to pay attention to all the places where it talked about Pharaoh's heart? I want us to look at Pharaoh's heart, and then I want us to look at God's heart. And how this passage helps us see both of those things. The narrative of the plagues highlights Pharaoh's stubborn heart. It starts even before what I read today. It starts as far back as chapter 4 when Moses is given his commission to go and lead the people out of Israel. And there God says to him, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't come as a surprise. We kind of know it all along. We do see it uh, in our passage as well, and it's described in different ways in our passage. Look again at chapter 9, beginning at verse 34, and then into the first verse of chapter 10. In in, In verse 34, it says this, Pharaoh hardened his heart, he and his servants. Okay, that's verse 34. Notice what it says in verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. We go from Pharaoh hardening his own heart, he's the agent, he's the actor in it, to this passive or this stative construction. His heart was hardened. Then look at the very next verse. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the heart of his servants. Well, which is it? Did Pharaoh do the hardening or did God do the hardening? Yes. It's both, right? 
And those three verses are paired together uh, so that we make that connection. It's often how things work, that God is the primary agent, he is the first cause, and yet he often uses secondary causes, and he allows our agency to be part of it. So God has determined it, but Pharaoh is complicit as an actor in this as well. There's a lesson there for us, too, when we think about our own stubborn hearts, when we think about our own hardness. Are there ways that we are complicit in that work? And throughout the plague narrative, the uh, the early plagues, there's a focus on Pharaoh hardening his own heart, or it's ambiguous. We can't really tell. And as the plagues go on, uh, more and more we see the presence of God. God has hardened Pharaoh. Why? So that he would know, so that Egypt would know, so that Israel would know, and so that we would know how great God is. There are three different words used throughout the cycle to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on them, but I just want to give you the the different semantic range of these words. The first word is heavy. There's a heaviness to Pharaoh's heart, sort of an unresponsiveness, a dullness to his heart. The next word is the word stubborn. Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. And then finally, it's the word dismissive. From heavy to stubborn to dismissive. You see, as we look at Pharaoh's heart, we're beginning to get a pathology of the human heart. Your heart and my heart. Dull to stubborn to dismissive. Uh, Well, why does Exodus give all this attention to Pharaoh's heart? kind of already given away the answer, right? It's because it tells us something about our hearts and the places that they are dull and stubborn and dismissive. And this is where I want to circle back to something I said when I introduced this series. I said, this series of sermons is going to be all about rival kingdoms. In Exodus, it was the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Israel. And in every kingdom, who's at the top? Well, the king, right? Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. And what is it that's at the center of every king? Well, his heart, of course. That's why we're focusing in on Pharaoh's heart. Now, I want you to think for a second about your rival kingdom. Who is the king in your rival kingdom? Well, for most of us, it's us. I'm the king. You're the king. And what's at the center of that king? Your heart. And so the narrative is structured in this way that makes us have to deal with our own hearts. We have to deal with the places that we want to be king. The places where we're not saying God is great, but I am great. All the places in our lives that are given over to self-focus and self-promotion and self-glorification. You ever watch, I watch a lot of sports, right? And I always love the interviews at the end of the game. The, the, the reporter comes up and sticks a microphone in their face and the first thing they do is, I just want to thank my Lord Jesus Christ, right? And it comes off to me as completely insincere. 
Because throughout the game, throughout the match, throughout whatever they've been doing, they've been jersey popping, right? They've been engaged in self-glorification. You know, they've been saying too small, right? Too small. I'm big, you're small. And so it comes off as completely insincere until I realize that I live my life not on a basketball court or a football field because I'm not that gifted athletically, but I do the same sort of jersey popping, the same sort of self-glorification because I want to be the king of my kingdom. It's the way that we're wired, isn't it? And so Pharaoh's heart gives us this insight into our own hearts. And, and notice throughout this cycle that we're supposed to see that Pharaoh is an anti-example. He is representing for us not the way that we're supposed to act in response to God. And he's so dull and so stubborn, it takes this cycle of ten plagues. And he's very back and forth, isn't he? He wants to negotiate with God. We see in the, in the uh, seventh plague for the first time, uh, Pharaoh, maybe as a positive sign, right? He says, I've sinned. And we're like, okay, finally he's going to repent. He's going to relent. He's going to let the people go. But how short-lived is that statement? Right? He'll, he'll repent for a short moment until the plague is lifted. And then he says, psych, I'm really not going to let you go. He goes back on his word. And we see that repeated. He's trying to negotiate with Moses. He says, well, who, do you, who needs to go? Just the guys, right? Everyone else is going to stay back. No, you need all the people to go. Well, surely you'll leave your livestock. And Moses again and again says, listen, if God is the God of the, the kingdom, if he's the true God, there's no negotiation. But how often are we just like Pharaoh? Where are you negotiating with God? Where are you saying to God the way that Pharaoh does in, in this passage to Moses? He says, just this once, right? Just this once plead for me. How many times have you said that to God? Hey, God, just help me out with this one thing, and then I'll never sin again in my life. It reveals the hardness of our hearts. It reveals the way that even when we repent, we want to hold something back from God. We won't let God have visibility into all of our lives. We won't let him be the king. We won't acknowledge that he is great because that would mean we aren't great. And just like with Pharaoh, God gives us opportunities for repentance. He gives us mercy. He gives us kindness. But we must let that kindness draw us into a full repentance. A repentance that isn't just with our words, but shows the fruit of repentance over time. All right, so hopefully this has given you some insight into Pharaoh's heart, and in turn given you insight into your heart. But there's something even more important for you to understand, and it's the heart of God. It's the heart of God. I said earlier, don't lose the forest for the trees. Well, I also don't want you to lose the tree for the forest. What do I mean by that? Well, I think what this passage, this long passage that I read, what it is helping us to see is the ultimate and final tree of God, which is the cross. 
In other words, I don't think we can rightly understand this plague cycle without reading it through the cross of Jesus Christ. And what happens a lot of the time is we read the Old Testament, we scratch our heads and we say, man, this doesn't line up. I can't make sense of this. Surely God could have gone about things in a different way. And we have to flip over to the New Testament. We have to see the cross of Jesus Christ because it becomes the key that unlocks the Old Testament. And that absolutely happens with the book of Exodus. You see, Exodus and these plagues are these strikes of judgment against sin and against evil, aren't they? They lead us to the cross. Because the cross is the climactic strike of God's judgment against sin. And there's another clue in Exodus that leads us to the cross. Maybe you've picked up on it by now. Right? In the final cycle... As God is turning up the heat, what does it end with? The ninth plague, darkness. Darkness. And earlier in our service, Peyton read for us a scene of the crucifixion. And do you remember one of the details? At the crucifixion, as Jesus hung on the cross, the sky went dark. The plague, the ninth plague was over Egypt for three days. The the plague of the cross brought darkness for three hours. From noon to three. Friday afternoon. It's not a coincidence. It's because darkness, a darkness that can be felt, descended over the entire earth as Christ received The judgment of God on himself. We struggle when we read the plagues, right? Because we're like, what's going on? Is that really the heart of God? That he's acting out in such judgment against Egypt? Surely he could have done something else. We have to look to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we see the heart of God. Where he pours out this judgment. Not against Egypt. Not against you. Not against us who deserve it. But against His Son, His innocent, blameless, perfect Son. And in that moment, we see the heart of God. So what is that meant to do for us? Do you remember where I started? And what I said the plagues were about, yes, it's about freedom. Yes, it's about getting the people of Israel out of Egypt. But it's about something deeper too, isn't it? It's that you would know how great God is. That's what the cross is meant to do. That you would know how great God is. That while you were an enemy, His Son died for you. That you would be free from sin and judgment forever. While you were racing away from God, while your heart was hardened and stubborn and dull, Christ died on the cross and rose again that your heart would be made new. That your heart would be restored. I want to go back to that Mark passage again that Sabrina read. The very end of it. Jesus hanging on the cross, the whole sky is darkened for three hours. And there's a centurion, that's a Roman soldier. He's not an Israelite, he's not a Jew. But he looks at what's happening and do you, did you catch, do you remember what he said? 
Surely this was the Son of God. He knew. He saw the heart of God as Jesus died on the cross. That's what the cross is meant for, to do for you and me as well. We can't make sense of the plagues without the cross. But when we do look to the cross, suddenly we see the heart of God. His judgment poured out, yes, harsh and severe, but we also see his mercy, his kindness, that the judgment would fall on another so that we would walk free. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonder of the cross. And as we sang earlier, in the cross of Christ, we glory. As we look to the cross today and every Sunday, may we know how great you are. That your mercy and steadfast love endure forever. That the terrible judgment that you pour on sin does not fall on us because Christ has taken it all. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.